Please turn to the book of James, chapter 4. We're going to continue on in our study in, uh, in the book of James, and hopefully the Lord is going to use this in our lives in a significant way, not only as individuals, but here in our church body. Um, before I preach, I just want to share something that Sarah and I just uh, passed our 51st wedding anniversary yesterday. There will be a great reward for her in the kingdom of heaven. She is truly a saint. She could tell you stories. Father, we pray right now that it would please you to hear our desire for you to change us from the inside out. Lord, would you work in us and use this word that James has penned many years ago to let it, let it cause us to hunger and thirst for righteousness in you and fresh ways. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You know, it just hit me uh, this morning as I was working on this, James was Jesus' little brother growing up. <laughs> I mean, really, I did, James, I, how would you like to have grown in, up in the family and Jesus was your older brother? Can you imagine that? Um, I just, it, it's an amazing thought, and evidently James became a follower of his older brother, Messiah Jesus, later in life, and of course... Here he is writing this awesome book that we have been reading through. Here, James chapter 4, starting with verse 11 to 17. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law... You are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a town, we'll spend a year there, we'll trade, and we'll make a profit. Yet, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this and we'll do that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now this is not on the overhead, but I wanted to tack this in as a follow-up. What we just read is this age, this world kind of stuff, okay? What we're seeing is the world to come. And so the book of Revelation, the last two portions of the last two chapters of the New Testament... In, in Revelation 21.1, John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, 
for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And, in, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, pay attention, the dwelling of God is with man. He will dwell with them, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Then he goes on to say in verse 24, by its light, speaking of the new Jerusalem, by its light, the nations will walk. Then he goes on to say in the next chapter, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river was the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Two pictures. An age that we are currently in, the book of James, that constantly reminds us of the age and the world to come, but then revelation that tells us, here's what this is going to look like when it arrives. Um, I chose to call this, uh, this sermon a New Covenant Street Smarts, because street smarts is what we all need to get through life, is it not? I mean, uh, here's a guy, is John Michael, Forbes magazine. Listen to what he wrote this past year. The Oxford Dictionary denotes street smarts as the knowledge and experience to deal with the difficulties and the dangers of life in the big city. And so I kind of think, you know, when you think about the New Jerusalem that's described and when he gives the dimensions of it, it's almost 1,400 miles cube shape, 1,400 miles high, 1,360 closer to exact, to 1,360 to 1,360. Trying to get that, get your mind around that one. And that's a pretty big city. It's bigger than anything we know on this planet currently. And that's what's coming to the, to the new earth and the new heavens. And so if you think about navigating in streets, whether this world or the world to come, Life is made up of knowing your environment, knowing how you should walk, how you move, how you move among others. And so the challenges and the dangers that we face in this world will not be there in this new age to come. God is the one who controls all things. And this is what James has camped out on all the way through this brief book. Many people think about it, develop street smarts from their own experience. You know, you, you, you do this, you tried that, you, that failed, you got hurt, whatever. Uh, your purse got snatched in Philadelphia, whatever happens, okay? You learn from experience, but 
there isn't enough time in this world to develop enough experiential knowledge to make it and to make it well. And so the, the book of James is coming to us with God's wisdom. That's why he starts the book talking about the wisdom of God. If you lack wisdom, ask of God, he will give it to you. And so he writes a book telling us that we need to know how God thinks of things. Well, if the streets of heaven is our future, but we're on the streets of earth today, then how then, God, shall we walk in it? And walking in it implies a host of different activities, but it implies relationships with others, communication, what we do, where we spend our time. And all the way through, as I studied and prepared for this message, I was impressed with the fact that James is constantly bringing up Old Testament ideas. But he does it in a different way. It's not like the, the Torah, the, the Ten Commandments, which were written on tablets of stone to quote the New Testament. It's that God is up to something new, that what he wrote in stone was still true, but it wasn't getting off of the stone tablets into the human heart. And so he talks a lot about the law and obedience and what God wants to do in us and how we should live, but he does that through the lens and the eyes of the new covenant. And so the dismal failure of Israel is highlighted many times, not just in, in the Old Testament, but in the New as well. The writer of Hebrews, listen to what he says about the street smarts, where that starts in the New Covenant. Hebrews chapter 8 says, verse 8, for he, God, finds fault with them, Israel, when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. For this covenant that I will make, he says, I will put my laws into their minds. Think of that. I will write them on their hearts I will be their God, and they will be my people. What we read in, in Revelation, that's what he's described, that we're going to have his name, we're going to see his face, we're going to be transformed perfectly when that comes about, and so we will walk those streets that are not terrorized by sin ever again, we will safely and securely walk those streets. What we do today counts forever. And that's why he's telling us these things. I just want to bring one other thing out that James brought out. It was in an earlier verse, James chapter 2, verse 18 to 26. Um, he says, someone will say to me, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will, I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, and you do well, but even the demons believe and shudder. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. He says that, and Martin Luther, when, 
when he was right in the throes of the Reformation, read that, and he wanted to burn the book of James in his trash can because he believed it was saying what the Roman church was said about the relationship of faith and works, but he learned that he was wrong in that opinion. My brothers and sisters, in the Reformation, as people began to grapple and study God's word with the lens of the gospel, they began to realize that, quote, you are saved by faith alone, but not by the kind of faith that is alone. Faith is a living thing. It is the work of the Holy Spirit, and because it's a living thing, it inevitably is going to always produce works or obedience. So don't let that confuse you. Obedience, and this is what James is saying, is the fruit and the manifestation of the sign of life. Life begins with the Holy Spirit and with faith. And this is a rich picture. But that's where he goes. And so naturally, he takes the law, and he's going to now quote it. And I just read it a few minutes ago, but we'll hit the highlights of what I read. Here's my first point. Watch your mouth by watching your judge-a-meter. Your judge-a-meter is this little device that all of us have in our hearts and our minds that look at each other. We always see the failures of others. We don't easily see our own. We minimize our own. Well, that judge-a-meter um, is something that James is looking at what's going on in the early church, and he's dealing with this issue. It's kind of like, you know, I... I told in the last hour, when I was in junior high, I, I started to learn through the school of hard knocks when I was in junior high that you'd better not shoot your mouth off. And I did. I was walking in the hall with two girls on each side, and it was to, there was a teacher coming down the hall, and she made no attempt to move to the side. She hit this girl so hard that that girl bounced into me and I bounced into this other girl and then I turned around and I said something and I'm not going to tell you what I said. You can wonder about it, but I'm not going to tell you. I said something and two teachers heard it. They drug me down to the principal's office. He simply gave me a medical question. He said, do you have, do you have a heart uh, issue, palpitations, uh, any kind of fits, any kind of seizures? I said, no, sir. He says, put your hands on a wall and he gave me two whacks. And I mean, my behind vibrated all the way home. <laughs> I will not, see, I can remember that lesson very well. My brothers and sisters, you learn whether it's a school principal or whether it's your mom and dad that said, you'd better watch your mouth. Um, those influences in our lives are there to remind us that we need tongue control, and that's what James has said over and over in this book. But now James goes deeper with the issue in this passage. Um, the church is not immune. It is not immune 
from the kind of caustic, salty conversations that go on. You know every time you turn on the news or you watch TV or walk down the street, you know how caustic communication has come. And it's now leaders are supposed to lead the way. Leaders are leading the way down into this black moral hole. So listen, this is, this is on steroids front and center in our culture, and it's also in the church. I've heard other pastors tell me that they've never seen such a hostility in much of the modern church like they have seen, like they see today. So you better watch your mouth is definitely, you better be aware of that judge a meter because that's where it starts. It's not the communication per se, expressing a judgmental attitude happens, but it's something that is behind that, and that's what James is saying. When he says in verse 11, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. He's now said two things then. He said, don't you judge, don't you be speaking critically of others, but then he goes from the, the general to the specific. He's speaking about brothers especially. And he says, the one who speaks against a brother or judges his neighbor speaks evil against the law and judges the law. Now, what does that mean? I spent hours, Sarah can tell you, I spent hours trying to understand, what is he getting at? I, I get it if I, if I insult you and I judge you and I run you down unjustly. I get that part, but how is that an actual malicious attack upon God's law? which is what James is concerned about. He's showing there's something subterranean, there's something beneath that that is driving that kind of response. So where did James get this from? I want you to notice verse 12 in the passage. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? Neighbor, hold on to that word, neighbor. Where did he get that from? Well, he got it from his big brother, Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew 22, 37, 40, being interrogated by some hostile uh, Israeli scholars, he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and the first commandment, the vertical. You shall love the Lord your God. The second is like it, said Jesus. You shall love your neighbor. There's that word again. Your neighbor as yourself on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So if you took the Old Testament and you were to boil it down to its core, what are the two things? What is it that God in, in that sense requires of you and me? That we love him first and relationships, horizontal matter 
we love our neighbor as we, we love ourselves. He's not talking about the modern concept of self-love. You've got to feel good about yourself. What he's saying is you and I, by nature, take care of ourselves first. And then, since that's what we do, he's saying you need to love your neighbor the way you naturally take care of yourself. So laying that out, Jesus has now referred back to something else. So now my question is, if James got it from Jesus and Jesus got it from the Torah, even though, of course, he was God, he knew it. He had a hand in the writing of it, if you will, in a sense. Listen, where did James and Jesus get that from? And so when James writes these words... We go all the way back to Leviticus chapter 19, verses 16 to 18, and this gives us the clue and the answer to the question, why when I attack you unjustly, am I not just attacking you, I'm attacking God himself, I'm attacking the, the, the law itself that gave me that righteous standard, Okay. So here it is. Listen to Leviticus. It's in 19, if you want to see it. Leviticus 19, verses 16 to 18. Three verses. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. I am Yahweh. It's kind of God's way of saying, I'm going to put you in your place. I'm the only God around here. Then he says, so don't go around slandering your brothers and sisters, and slander, remember, is speaking conversation that is intended to destroy the reputation of someone else. It's malicious. He then, in the next verse, says, you shall not hate your brother. You notice how he goes from speech, he goes deeper. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. And then he adds to that, you shall reason frankly with your neighbor. In other words, I don't just go around saying things, communication, and I say those things because I've got a heart issue. That's that ometer I'm describing. He's saying that you sit down and you reason. What's that telling me? That if I'm going to shoot off my mouth, and I'm going to run you down, I need to spend some time with you and be sure that what I'm about to charge you with is true. Doesn't that make sense? Now, by the way, have you noticed in the slander that's going on publicly in the U.S. today, is it according to truth? The... The thing that the Torah goes on to say is, you shall not take vengeance or hold a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. There it is. Neighbor, God, He's God. I am to not hold hostility in my heart. 
I'm not to go out of my way to attack you for the purpose of making you look bad. That's what he's getting at. So whatever James is dealing with in the early church, and by the way, I wish I could say this doesn't happen in this church or other churches. Listen, this is human nature even among the people of God, which is what always surprises us then what is the nature of this judging then? What is it James is saying, you need to, you need to change this to his, his generation, of course, to you and me? Well, very simply, it's a condemning, harsh spirit that is expressed verbally. It is, is it false accusations? Yes, it may be, but it's not necessarily just that. It may be based on inadequate understanding. It's malicious fault-finding that includes false information. Now, this is not talking, by the way, about church discipline. Interesting enough, Jesus commanded the church to exercise church discipline. When someone remains impenitent in sin, God says, I command you. He says it three times in Matthew Jesus said it, I command you, go to your brother privately and work it out. And if you can't get, deal with the issue, then you take two or three witnesses. And if that doesn't work, you tell it to the church. He's, the, the purpose of this is not malicious. The purpose is redemptive. Please hear me on this. And it's based on verifying facts. That's what Jesus prescribes. So... The idea of speaking against somebody, it, it is a new covenant understanding. And this is why, why I think it's an appropriate use of the word street smarts. How do we work and function and relate to each other in a broken, sinful world that even the church struggles to do what's right at times? Well, it was James who has highlighted this. And Jesus himself, by the way, in Matthew 5, he talked, about, he, he talked about the popular rabbinic idea that, you know, you heard it said that you are to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemy and do good to those who abuse you. And then he goes on to say, for you will be like your Father in heaven, for your Father in heaven has done what Jesus said? He sends the sunshine on the heads of the ungodly, unrighteous, and he sends the rain on the unrighteous as well as the righteous. In other words, atheists, their crops grow. That's an evidence of what we call common grace. And he's saying... Since the Father today is not zapping everybody, that's coming on the final judgment day for the impenitent. He's saying, God is telling you, as you move in the world, love people who are unloving. I, I have learned so much from the Rwandan people. I remember I was there... Uh, I've, I don't know how many times I've been to Rwanda. You know the genocide. They killed a million people in 100 days with machetes. 
And this was husband on wife, wife on husband, neighbor on neighbor. I was there in 2014, the only time I've been there in the month of April. And uh, they remember this was the, the 20th anniversary of the genocide. And so all day long on the radio, when you just drove down the street, you heard people talking about what they were. I remember hearing one woman who said, I was hacked with a machete and I was holding my baby. They killed my baby and threw me in a pit. And she said, I'm in a pit with a bunch of other dead people who had just been killed. And they left me for dead. She came to and she crawled out and she was telling her story. But what struck me about the story was not just that she survived, but she was going on to talk about forgiveness. She prayed for that person. That kind of takes the wind out of the sails of an accusatory spirit to hear and think about that. James is saying, avoid this one thing, the arrogant attempts to know what you do not and cannot know. What does that mean? Stop vying for God's position. That's why he goes on to say, he says, verse 12, there's only one lawgiver and judge. And this judge is not only righteous, he's never had to retract a single court ruling he makes. He's always righteous. And he said, because of that, when he acts in judgment, he knows accurately every detail. He will never exceed what justice demands. And so he has both the character and the nature to be the true judge, and he also has the ability, James mentions it, he is the one who can save or destroy. He can rescue or inflict final judgment. Why does James mention that? That's how we judge the law. That if we say, well... I'm going to assume the place of God that I think I know enough to be able to draw this conclusion and condemn you whether I've even bothered to study the facts or not. God said, he's, James says, don't do that. Now, he turns from the street smarts of relationships and communication and judgmental spirit to a second category, which is I call this living like a fog. <laughs> Because that's what's described here when he says, come now, you who say tomorrow we will go to such and such a town. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life, James asked. He asked the subterranean critical question that is right before us. Here's these businessmen. They've got all these plans, and James is going to bring this out in chapter 5, which Martin, Martin Martin is going to preach on that next Sunday. He's going to detail that, but what he's saying is, look, when you make plans, it's good to plan, but in your plans, make sure there is one critical factor that guides the plans all along, and that is, what is God's will here? 
And so he first raises the ultimate question, what is your life? Really, what is your life? In your career, in your one-year plan, your five-year plan, your 10-year plan, what is your, what is your purpose? What is your life constructed of? And so that's why he then reminds us that there's something we, none of us, know. What is that one thing? I call it uh, recognize that you don't know God's decretive will. What? What is a decretive will? A decretive will is a will that has been declared, but it is a will that I am not privy to. Does anybody in this room know when is the day they will die? Would you want to know? There's a good, kind reason why God doesn't tell any of us that. And that is the decretive will is that secret will. He talked about it in the Old Testament when he said... The revealed things belong to the sons of Israel, but the secret things belong to Yahweh. Those are the decretive means God has determined it's going to happen, and it will, but he doesn't tell you everything that he has determined, and he doesn't tell how and when it's going to come about. And that's what, that's, what, uh, that's what James is saying. He says, you should instead say, in asking the question, what is your life? He says, you are a mist. And instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will go do this. That's his decretive will. We know what his revealed will is, but we don't know what he has decreed. We know he tells us how to live which is what James is telling us. I then now know I am not to be acting out of a, a spirit of maliciousness against others. I also know that in my plans, though I plan, I must plan with a full awareness that I am a mis I'm just a fog. And so that's why I think it's proper to call this life is fog. I don't mean by that fog in the sense of I can't see that's not the emphasis here. Fog means brevity. You know, when I left early this morning to come into the office, uh, it was a fog. <laughs> and I thought on the way in, there you go. It's, yeah, it's, it's going to lift. I'm going to see it's going to lift. It's going to be there for long. I have a good friend who is now deceased, who took his, he, he was getting his pilot's license. I grew up in St. Petersburg, Florida. We had awful fogs down there. And they would beg you, don't go out. Don't drive your car right now. Why? Because there were times I could not see 10 feet in front of the car. But that fog, that's not what James is talking about. They were saying, wait, because the sun is up there. Though you can't see it, it's going to lift. And then you can safely drive. Brothers and sisters, your life and mine is like that fog. And so James is going on to, to tell us that we don't know everything. Therefore, 
we are, are, are to be careful to live life in such a way that it counts. And that God, who will lift that fog one day called my life, my life will, is a vapor and will be gone. But not permanently gone. <laughs> um, Psalm 139. Here's David. He connects the dots. David ends up saying in Psalm 139, if I could preface something here, uh, a fellow who taught me years ago said, atheists accuse Christians of weak people. We are weak people. We have to invent a God that makes us comfortable, and that's why we gather in this church, and that's why we worship this God of the Bible. My answer to them is very direct. If that argument were true, then the God of the Bible would never have been described. Because you have passages like Psalm 139 that is the most intimidating words you'll ever read. Listen to David, King David, who committed premeditated murder and committed adultery with the wife of another man. He writes these words about God's omniscience. God knows everything. He knows everything actual and possible. He never learned a single thing. And God is not only omniscient, he knows all, doesn't learn a thing, he already knows it. He is omnipresent, he's everywhere. There's nowhere he is not. And listen to David describing personally. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Yahweh, you know it all together. You hem me in. You're in front of me. You're behind me. I can't get away from you, he's saying. You surround me. He goes on to say, this is incomprehensible. This knowledge is too wonderful for me. I can't attain it. How can I understand a God like this? That is omniscient and omnipresent everywhere. Nowhere he's not. He says, I can't go where God isn't. Where shall I go from your spirit, says David? Where shall I flee from your presence? He says, if I make my bed in Sheol, or I go to the bottom of the sea, you realize God is in hell? Think about it. We talk about hell as separation of God. That's true. It's separation of the blessing and, and presence of God in blessing. But God is omnipresent, and if he's equally present right here on this podium, or here, or there, he's equally present everywhere. And if he's equally present everywhere, then unless we have the idea that he winds the universe up like a clock, then even hell is sustained by his presence as punishment for impenitent sin. So, David knows this, and he says, he's everywhere, he's everywhere. <laughs> he says, even though your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. He's, I'm left-handed, by the way. Okay? 
It's a right-handed world, trust me, it's not fair. But a right-handed world, when he says, your right hand shall hold me, he's saying in those words, the right hand is the favored hand, and referring to God, he's saying that God takes his best hand, if you will, quote-unquote, and he is holding me. Wow. Um, But he knows and sees everything. He says, the darkness does not cover me. And here's the final words he gives. Surely your eyes saw my unformed substance when I was conceived in my mother's womb. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. My brothers and sisters, none of them. The day you and I were conceived, the day of our death had already been put in that book. Now, is that evil? Is that bad? Absolutely not. It just goes to show you how big this God is. James knew this, and so that's why he finishes with this. He says, you ought to say if the Lord wills, you submit yourself to God's sovereign will. And he's saying all such boasting, if you boast in your arrogance, you think you can be God in the control of your schedule or your future. He's saying, well, that's evil. And that's why it always leads to sin. So arrogance is a great evil before God, every form of it. And the last thing he says is, whatever, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And that is that second category of the will of God. It is the category where God didn't tell us the future. I don't know the day of my death. You don't. We don't know what the future holds. We trust God as we approach it. That's what James is saying. But James is also saying that as we consider that reality, that we grow in our confidence, 